So I was a youth pastor. Many of you guys know this for an awfully, awfully long time before God and I got together and decided that I needed to be a senior pastor. Um, and so I, I had, part of the organization of my youth ministry, I had a lot of high school and college age students who were helping me lead the junior high ministry. And I called them table leaders, and I would have them come in about an hour before our junior high night, and we would just kind of have a leader meeting. And I would ask them a series of questions. And, and again, as I thought of these questions to ask them, it was, they were accountability questions, right? Um, and I, was, and I was asking them some simple questions. Did you contact any of the kids at your table this week, email, phone call, whatever? Um, did you do devotions this week? And I can't remember what the third question was. But I quickly realized early on that uh, when they didn't do their devotions, you could see them almost shrinking back in their chairs like as we went around the group and it was arriving at their turn I could just, I could see the pain in their eyes, and I, I quickly decided I, I needed to stop asking that question because it, it had gotten twisted. It had gotten all kind of weirded out a little bit. So what I want to talk about this morning, I want to talk about um, love and obligation. Love and obligation. See, my, my, my deal was is I didn't want the Bible reading to move from a want to to a have to right, to, a, to a, a, an obligation or a chore, right? I didn't want it to become um, a requirement that if they didn't do it, there would be negative consequences, right? Um, and, and as I began to prepare this message, that, that, that whole mindset kind of begs the question, um, does it really matter if we're good out of a sense of obligation? Or does it have to be out of a sense of genuine love, Right? Can we just read the commandments and, you know, whether we agree with them or not, should we just do them? Or do we, are we okay not to do them unless we're doing them out of genuine love, right? Is God expecting us just to, to wrote these things or does he expect us to kind of think them through and embrace them and own, and own them? I would argue with very, very few exceptions, and we're going to come to those exceptions in a little bit here, that it makes a huge difference. It makes a life and death difference, whether you're doing things out of an obligation or out of genuine love. The problem starts with the fact that words like obligation and duty and requirement, right, they all imply that we have no choice, right? We have no choice in the matter. If we do or if we don't do something that somebody has prescribed, then we're condemned. We're bad, right? We're, we're, we're bad people. Now, to be certain, there's a lots of obligations that come with, with just, they come with life, Right? You've got to fix dinner for the family. You've got to get to work on time. You need to live a healthy lifestyle. Don't spend more than you earn. And the list goes on and on. These are obligations, right? But when the world of obligation and duty and requirement invades our spiritual life, we've got big, big problems. Huge, huge problems, right? When we do this, we turn the world that Christ came in and turned upside down. We come in and turn it right side back up and like brush them all off. Everyone okay? Sorry about that, you know? And that's exactly what we do. We, we turn back the time, right? We take Christ away from the equation. As soon as we, these obligations invade our, our spiritual life. We commit to, we do things like committing to setting more time aside for Bible reading or serving on a church committee, loving that gossiping neighbor, maybe starting to tithe. But God's word says that if we're only doing them to be good, right, to avoid guilt and condemnation and being labeled as bad, then are we really doing anything good at all? 
Are they genuine acts of Christian love in the first place, or are they simply, well, something else entirely? The big question is, were we and are we free to do them? And probably more importantly, are we free to not do them? Because that's true freedom. If a true and mature love is always uncontrolling, and if we're not free to not do them, do they still constitute a true and mature act of genuine Christian love? The key concept, again, is Christian, or Christian freedom, right? The traditional idea, the idea that we've all grown up with, is that we're free from the specific ceremonial laws of Moses, right? The law. We're under a lot of it. We, we, we still subscribe to a lot of it, but, but a good chunk of it, we, we're, we're free from it, right? This is kind of the idea, in, in, in the popular idea in our minds. But the fact of the matter is, the kind of freedom that Paul spoke about in his letters had more to do with than, than just freedom from specific laws, right? It was freedom to choose life over death. It was freedom to choose love over simply avoiding guilt, Right? We had the freedom from fear and guilt and condemnation whenever we choose poorly. Fact of the matter is, again, we cannot love unless we are free to not love and to see the consequences for both actions. Freedom without real choices really isn't freedom. And we, we all know this. But what we, we might not be aware of and what, we, what the world has a hard time getting their head around is that many of these freedoms that we're looking at right here on the screen in front of us, they all come by way of God's grace. They aren't just, they didn't come free. They came at a price. To us, they're free. But somebody had to pay a price. And that was Jesus Christ. Christian freedom comes through grace. When we fail to be something that we're not or when we do something that we shouldn't have done, we are truly free from condemnation through God's grace. We no longer have to do anything. If I'm reading this correctly. So why do so many Christians refuse to believe that they're truly free? Why do so many Christians, and I have been a, one of those for many, many years, why is it that I feel like I am still a slave to sin and I'm still a slave to bad habits, I'm still a slave to bad thoughts? Why can't I get my head around the idea that I am, in fact, free? I think it starts with the, the Scripture, right? The Bible, it constantly refers to the human race as what? Slaves. It does, right? And this means that we must obey or else. Whether the master is a person or an influence or maybe even a habit, right? It becomes our master. And the Bible says that we're slaves to sin. Pretty simple. What this means is that whatever we hate to do, like getting angry at our spouse or our kids or drinking too much, overeating, spending too much, criticizing, you know, our, our neighbor, um, we do it anyways, right? We literally can't stop ourselves because we're slaves to sin, right? We're slaves to doing the things that we don't really want to do. We hate to do it, but they're so easy to do, right? They're our natural instinct. We literally can't help ourselves. We are slaves to this kind of behavior, to what the Bible calls the law of sin and death, the law of sin and death. Now, as long as we're under the law, and I just kind of want to stop for a moment here, I'm going to be talking a lot about the law, and I'm going to be talking about being under the law. I'm eventually going to get to the point, believe it or not, where the law is good, but being under the law is bad. 
Right? We, we, you feeling me here on this? You know, the law is good. We're going to come to that. But being under the law, not so good. Hang in there. This is going to make sense in a little bit. As long as we're under the law, we will fail. As much as we try to be good or as good as our intentions may be, we will fail. But the person who trusts Jesus as Savior is out from under the law. Right? The law still exists, but we're out from under the law. And we're, we're going we're to kind of play that out just a little bit here. To the point where when, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failures. He sees the perfection of Christ. So mentally, right, mentally we know freedom. We know grace. We understand mercy. Douglas just explained it to us. Thank you, Douglas. But experiential, experientially, we still feel and act as if we weren't free. Emotionally, we still operate under the law of sin and death. And here's how you can tell when you're still operating under the sin and law of sin and death. First thing, if you recognize this in yourself, that you're always angry. Right? Romans 4, 15 says that the law brings wrath or anger. Right? First, it's the wrath of God. God gets angry when we do things against his character, when we hurt people that, that he loves. Right? And we're the same way. We get angry when someone hurts us or when somebody hurts somebody that we love. Right? We get upset. And then we get angry back at God. So God gets angry at the sin, and then we get angry at God because he's telling us to do something that we don't want to do and that we have to do, and if we don't do it, we're bad and we're going to be punished. So he gets mad, and then we get mad at him, and then finally we end up, we're mad at ourselves, right? We're just angry at ourselves because we fell to that habit one more time, and we start calling ourselves these horrible, horrible names, and we start putting ourselves down. See, all this anger when we're ruled by just the law, when we're under the law. And then the following, following the anger, we, we get condemnation, right? We always feel guilty. Under the law of sin and death, we are forever in a state of guilt. And I want to kind of talk about this very quickly here. The state of guilt means that you did it, right? Everybody in the room knows you did it. But as Christians, we're invited to have that guilt permanently removed from our record. Isn't that amazing? As far as the east is from the west, God's word tells us. That transgression, whatever we did, whatever we thought, whatever we didn't do, it gets removed permanently. Like no seven-year wait, no, no anything like that. It's, it's gone. But when we don't take that option, when we don't take that option, at least in our hearts, we arrive at a second stage. We arrive at worldly guilt or sorrow or shame. We use the word shame a lot. And this is that horrible feeling of worthlessness and unlovability and badness, right? It's a very inward-focused kind of pain. We, we focus on ourselves and the pain that our guilt has caused us. This makes more sense maybe if you were a kid and you remember your mom and dad when you got caught doing something stupid or something you weren't supposed to be doing and you say you're sorry and your mom and dad know you're not sorry and then they say this to you, right? You're not sorry. You're just sorry you got caught, right? Raise your hand at your home if you've ever been told that, right? That, that is worldly guilt, that, that, that shame, right? You're not bothered by the fact that you hurt somebody. You're bothered that you now have to go to your room and be on detention. That's your only thought. And then there's godly sorrow, right? Godly sorrow is focused solely on the other person. The pain and grief that you've caused that other person is now causing you discomfort. Not the fact that you're going to get put on restriction, but the fact that you caused somebody else pain, and, and it begins to hurt you. 
All you can think about is making things right rather than simply getting out of trouble and making this yucky feeling go away, right? So rather than being based on wrath itself, godly sorrow is based on love for others. And love is the key motivator here. Love is the key motivator. Listen to this. This is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death, now, this is the important part, so that we may serve the living God. In other words, only when we're freed from this worldly guilt and sorrow and shame that we just, we feel, right? But it's not, it's not absolutely true, but we, we feel it, right? Only when we're freed from that guilt and sorrow and that, that worldly shame will we finally be freed to serve out of genuine love. The fear of punishment has to be removed first, though in order to release us to really love unfettered with nothing kind of hanging in the back of our mind. I need to do this or else I'll get in trouble. Another key indicator that you may be living under the law of sin and death is you feel unloved. Living under the law of sin and death emotionally separates us from law, from, from love. Excuse me. The law is hostile towards us. We, we know this. God's word tells us this. The law says that God will have nothing to do with us in our state of guilt. He will not relate to us when we are not as we should be. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says radically different. Listen to this. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God, Douglas brought this out a little earlier, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He got, God loved us first, even when we were in open rebellion against his kingdom. As a middle school teacher in Fairfield. It was Crystal Middle School. And I developed a reputation, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not being very humble here, a little bit of bragging. I was trying to be a really good Christian teacher. And so I was very, very deliberate in treating troubled kids really, really lovingly. I, I just kind of got into it. Um, and, and, and on the campus, it became the thing to do is if you had a troubled kid, you'd send them to Mr. Carter's class. And what I figured out is the kids... It wasn't that I was so much nice to them or I, that I let them get away with anything. It's, th it's that every time they came back into my room, I, I forced myself to pretend like they did not just get in trouble. They're not just coming back from the principal's office. They didn't just do something really horribly stupid. I, I pretend like they are the most amazing person. The minute they walked, I just kind of made this a habit. It, it was nothing altruistic on my part. I just started doing it. But it became, it became a thing on campus. There was one little girl, and she, she had some issues, and she would get angry, and she would start cussing at me. This is in the middle of class. She would just start cussing at me and, and just going off, and I would just, you know, kind of point to the door, and, and it, it became routine. Everybody understood what was going on. She'd go to the principal's office, and she'd come back, and I would welcome her with open arms every time, no matter what she said to me. And she told me later on she loved coming to my, she, my class apparently was the only class that she would even bother going to because she was loved. Her behavior didn't stop me from loving her. And that, I think, freaked her out just a little bit. And it will freak out the world. And it's not just love at first sight and then, yeah, you know. It's not like God's like, here you go, kid, good luck. I, I cleaned you all up, but if you, <laughs> one more time, I'm not going to be there for you. It's, it's, not, it's not what he does. Check this out. This is awesome. This is in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like sin has other consequences that we have to face, but separation from God simply isn't one of them. The next consequence of living under the sin of death, the, the law of sin and death, is a little bit confusing, but as I explain it, you'll, you'll go, wow, <laughs> that's true, right? Under the law of sin and death, when we're trying to follow the rules, <laughs> we actually follow the rules less, right? We actually sin more. It's the craziest thing, right? You know, you know tell me not to look in a box, I promise you that's all I'm going to think about until I can look inside that box and find out what's in there. And there could be nothing in there. But the fact that you told me I couldn't look in there, you know, and I'm wondering, are you holding back on me? Do you got something really cool in there? Is there like a severed head in there? I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm like freaking out. I got to look inside that box. Paul uses other words, but it's basically the law of forbidden fruit, right? Romans 8, 39 says, I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I think I had a misquote there. Anyway, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. This is exactly what he's saying, right? If nobody had told me to not look in the box, I would never have looked in the box. But the command to not look in the box deceived me, and now I want to look in the box. The more I'm not supposed to want it, the more I want to do it. I start obsessing about it. I'm sure this makes sense to you all. If we fear punishment or hard feelings for the things that we're supposed to do or not do, then we have not died to the law of sin and death. The very method by which we're trying to change the law, following the law, it will produce failure. It, that's just the way human nature is. I, I, I don't get it. it. I just see it. it. That's just the way it happens. And the final consequence of living under the law of sin and death is kind of a catch-all. You gain absolutely no benefit if you're not doing things out of genuine love. Motivation is everything to God. The reason behind all of his commandments is love. It's not control. It's not anything but love. It's not anything, but he desperately wants us to have the full life that he intended. That's all he wants. It's almost like, you know, the, the police, right? Whenever there's a new law, everyone's always afraid of, of getting arrested and getting in trouble. And the police are always really, really wise when they say, we're not going to make any arrests. We're just going to educate people, right? That, that's almost what, what, what's going on here with the laws. God's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to punish you. I want to educate you. I want to show you. The law is meant to show you that certain things are going to bring you incredible pain and loss, and doing certain other things is going to bring incredible joy and happiness. If our motivation is compulsion or feelings of obligations or guilt or uh, avoiding badness or anything like that, it's simply not love. Paul writes this in his first letter to the Corinthians. If you were... Ever been to a wedding? You have probably heard this passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
In other words, if we behave in a certain way because we should rather than because we want to, it profits us zero, zero. In his letter to, to Philemon, you're going to have to go look at this, verses 12 through 14, I think. Paul wouldn't even accept gifts that weren't spontaneous, right, and unforced, all right? This is, he, he, he got it. He understood that if he started receiving gifts that, that people felt compelled to give him, everything would be lost. The world would have been turned right back up to the way the Pharisees wanted it. If we are in slavery to the shoulds, because of fear or guilt, and we're simply not ready to love. We have to be set free first, because slaves don't love, but, but sons and daughters do. We have to find the freedom to live and the freedom to love. In Paul's day, folks brought up the very same reaction we all feel when we discuss God's grace, right? That, every, that he gives us all this stuff that we didn't earn, I don't know if it's just an American thing, but that really rubs us wrong because we're so individualistic and we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, and we don't need anybody's grace and handouts. And, and it just, it, it, I, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. But here's how, here's, here's how people reacted to this idea of grace in Paul's day, and I think they still do. What shall we say then, he asked, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? In other words, if we aren't condemned for what we do and who we are, why bother trying to be good at all? Does that make sense? Why, 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 why bother if it doesn't make any difference? If we're not condemned for the bad things we do, why try to be good at all? Here's Paul's answer. By no means should you continue sinning. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I worked with, uh, what's it called, Monterey Bay Teen Challenge. Uh, David Wilkerson, Cross the Switchblade, all that, Run Baby Run. Um, Nikki Cruz, some of you guys know this story. Um, he has chapters all over the United States, probably all over the world, Teen Challenge. Um, and I worked with him quite a bit in Watsonville. And, and to a man, <clears throat> to a woman, to, to the person, they will tell me it is ridiculous to be freed only to return to jail. They, they tell me they would gladly give up a limb to keep from going back to whatever their addiction was. Right now that they're out of it, to them that was living hell. And these people come and say, well, well with grace, won't you just want to jump right back into them? Any addict will tell you, you've got to be kidding. Do you even understand where sin will take you? Because I've been there. And I'm speaking for other people here. Still, still, the worried legalists among us will ask, but if the should won't keep us in line, what will keep us in line? God's Word gives us great three really, really solid answers. The first thing is God's love will keep us in line, right? Paul writes this in his letter to the Roman Christians. This is chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. See, Paul had been arguing with the people that, that when we try to keep each other in line with rules and regulations and condemnations, well, we, we all just ended up judging each other, right? And everything got really ugly, and then we're all living under the law of sin and death. But God is the perfect judge because he knows perfectly the hearts of people, we don't. 
So when we experience perfect judgment, which includes grace and mercy and forgiveness, right, we can't help but pass that on, right? That becomes our judgment of other people the way Christ has judged us, which leads us to the second answer that the Bible gives. What will keep us in line? Love of neighbor will keep us in line. When we love others and we're deeply connected to them, we don't want to hurt them. I don't know if you've recognized this. People you don't like, the expectation, the gap between what you expected and what they delivered, when you don't like them, there's no gap, right? You give them no forgiveness, no mercy, no grace, nothing. But when you love them, that gap's got no, got no edges to it. It just grows and grows and grows. They can do no wrong because you love them so much. This is what's going on here. When we love our neighbor, right, we won't hurt them. We can't hurt them because we love them. Nearly every person I've ever initially disliked, almost to a rule, and then eventually liked, it was because I got to know them. Not because they suddenly became nice or they suddenly did something nice to me. It's just I got to know them, and they were really nice people, right? And, I, and immediately you start having, stop having negative thoughts about them because you love them. These relationships also serve to discipline us. People who love us and whom we love have earned the right to correct and rebuke us. And we receive it with love because we know it was given in love. Like there's not many people who can tell me things about my life, but my wife can because I know she does it out of pure love. And sometimes I'll push back just a little bit, but I've learned to listen because she speaks from her heart when she tells me, Jerry, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop saying things like that. You know, at first, like... But then it's like, okay, I, she's right. She's right. And I, I arrived at that point because I know she loves me. She's not trying to hurt me. Final piece of the puzzle. Final piece of the Bible's answer to God's unfathomable grace is the love of life. Right? Unless we're in denial, we would be miserable going back to the life of rebellious Sin, right? It gets old quickly. Behavior patterns that drive people away, habits that kill relationships instead of birthing new ones. See, God gives us the freedom to choose, and that's very important. He gives us the freedom to choose. And again, freedom isn't real unless we have real choices. And He gives us a choice the freedom to choose life. We can choose honesty and love and responsibility and forgiveness. Or he says that we can choose death by choosing deceit, separation, irresponsibility, and judgmentalism. Paul puts it like this, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. And when we say flesh, it's worldly guilt, worldly concerns, right? It's not... We automatically go to sexual thoughts when we think of flesh. That's, that's not the biblical idea here. It's, it's everything opposed to God. Let's just call it that. The mind governed by the world is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So, are shoulds helpful in any way? I've pretty much bashed them for just a little while here. The Bible actually says absolutely yes, but with a few caveats, a few conditions, Right? Because the Bible kind of looks at the shoulds very differently than the way we look at shoulds. 
Biblically speaking, shoulds are what we need to do to live, right? We need to cook dinner. We need to arrive at work on time. Those, those are things that we do to, 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 to live, right? And when it comes to the law, these, these, these shoulds, they, they really are a good thing. They are the perfect law. They're our guide to life. Doing what we should brings life and goodness. But here's the kicker. The Bible doesn't say you should or else you're bad. See, that's the law of sin and death, right? You didn't do what you're supposed to be, so you're bad. But the law of love, the law of Christ, says you should or else you'll suffer and you'll lose, right? The law in Jesus' hands says you should or you're going to miss out on the abundant life, right? I have for you now and later, life everlasting, Shoulds in the law are actually, they're good. In fact, Christ, you know, he said, I'm, I didn't come. Not one tittle, one not jot of the law will be done away. That's, that's not why I came at all. In fact, one of the most misunderstood passages of the Bible tells us this. This is in John chapter 1, verse 17. This is in the New International Version. It says, for the law was given through Christ, through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in a lot of older translations, it said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we, in our modern culture, because language changes over time, it evolves. And when we use the word but, it's always in contradiction to, right? An, an opposite. But in this passage, in your older versions that have the word but, it's really not trying to set up an opposite. It's really but also, Right? So, uh, uh, in other words, the law came through Moses and unfailing love and truthfulness came through Jesus Christ. The law was good, but it wasn't unfailing love, right? And it could be twisted. But unfailing love and full truthfulness came through Christ, right? The grace and truth of God could clearly be seen in the law, right? So, don't go down that road like the law is bad. Right? All of God's truth and his grace, I mean, it's all over the place in the law. The jubilee years and, and all that, it's just, it's amazing. Grace and truth can clearly be seen in the Old Testament. But what the writer is saying here, what John is saying here, is that in Christ Jesus, they're displayed like extravagantly, right? To the utmost degree. Again, they weren't absent in the Old Testament. They weren't absent in the law. They, weren't, they just weren't full flower yet. Does that make sense, right? They should not be separated. Law and grace should not be separated. The opposite of law was never grace. It's lawlessness. And Jesus Christ didn't come to promote lawlessness. He came to promote the opposite, right? Not one tittle, one not, not one jot. Grace just made the law, and I'm going to say this so carefully because it can be so misconstrued. Grace just made the law nicer, fairer, more just, right? Grace kind of, for those who accepted grace, it took the teeth out of the law. And again, the opposite of grace was never the law, but it was disgrace. See, the law had a way of making us feel disgraced or not worthy of love, Right? But Jesus changed all that. Biblical shoulds help us see where we need to change. The law helps us see where we need to change. But when we see a discrepancy, instead of running and hiding, 
The gospel says, turn to our heavenly father. And he's going to help us in two ways. Number one, he's going to help us to see the truth in ourselves without condemnation. Just saying, hey, buddy, look, this is what I'm seeing. I think you're seeing it too. Let's just kind of come to an agreement that what you're doing right now isn't working out very well. And now that we've come to an agreement with that, I want you to seek my face. I don't want you to seek the world's face. I want you to seek my face. And together, keep eye contact right here, right here. Let's work on this together. Without condemnation, I'm not going to make you feel bad. I'm going to be a loving father to you. And I'm going to, I'm going to help you get a leg up on this thing that's been bothering you. That's what I'm here for. I'm like the police officer. I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm going to educate you. Turns out <laughs> the law is not judging us in a legal way. See, that's the problem if we allow it. But the law is guiding us more in a loving, in a loving way. But coming out from beneath the law means changing from I have to to I want to. Doesn't mean we're always going to feel like doing what is right. I, I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. You're not always going to feel like doing what is right. But it generally means that we do want righteousness. That's why we do. That's our motivation. I don't think Jesus wanted the cross, but he wanted what it would give him, our salvation. And in the same way, we might not always want to obey, but we want the results. We want righteousness. We want to be in a right standing with God. This is the true want to. So how do you want to? It's five words, and this is my closing. Fall in love with Jesus. Some people will, nah, I'm just going to work harder at the rules. And if I do really, really good at the rules, then God won't be able to help but like me. Fall in love with Jesus. You won't be able to help but following his commandments, right? Because you're going to see his commandments as ways to life, ways to avoid death. They're no longer going to be ways to, to stop you from having fun because you see through that lie. That was never his intention whatsoever. Through Christ, we see through that lie. And we see the beauty of the law, but we see the beauty of grace too. We need the law. We need to understand where we are and where we need to be. But we desperately need grace so that we don't beat ourselves up and we beat up our neighbors in the process. If Christ can receive us just the way we are and we feel incredible joy at that moment, then imagine what other folks are going to feel when we give that same love to them. To love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with your Lord. Bow your heads, Father. We struggle with this idea of grace, free. We're told in so many different ways, Father, that nothing is for free. And in a way, grace wasn't free, but it was free for us. It cost you greatly. But for us, we just have to accept it. We just have to live into it. We just have to choose. And, Father, you give us that power to choose you show us clearly our options, and you show us the consequences of our options. So our choices are real. You gave us real freedom. So, Father, help us choose wisely.
Help us choose life. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.